The class of 2001 was hailed with a storm of lighting of fury on their entrance and exit for West Point. Graduating 101 days before the tragedy of 9-11, the class of 2001 served as junior military officers during the initial phases of the war on terror and increasing positions of influence over the next 20 years. Bound together for four years in school and together in service to our nation and their communities, these are the stories of those graduates as we look through the grave. On this episode of Through the Gray, we'll be speaking with Matt Raddick. Matt was interested in the service academies at an early age. This early interest drove him to focus on grades and sports and being well-rounded. Matt had family in the Marine Corps, but he was drawn towards West Point. Matt was accepted into West Point and walked into Beast Barracks with a class of 1999. After Matt's yearly year in the summer of 1997, he resigned West Point and went to Taiwan for two years as a Mormon missionary. Matt returned to West Point in the fall of 1999 and graduated two years later with the class of 2001. Matt branched armor and posted to Fort Carson with 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment, deploying to Iraq in 2003. Matt transitioned branches to military intelligence and served in South Korea and Iraq before returning to West Point to teach. Matt transitioned from military intelligence to become a foreign area officer with a focus on China and Taiwan. Matt would spend the remainder of his career digging deep and investing in Indo-Pacific foreign policy, culminating as a security and cooperation officer in Taiwan. This is his story. Through the Gray has its first sponsor, Urban Industrial Northwest. Urban Industrial Northwest is owned and operated by my childhood friend, Greg Hostetter. Greg and I grew up playing in the woods and hitting each other with sticks. I joined the military and Greg joined the trades. We both love the outdoors and the Pacific Northwest. Please visit his site and see the amazing work he and his team are creating. Urban Industrial Northwest is a furniture and fabrication company specializing in handcrafted products using heritage lumber deconstructed by architectural salvage companies from structures dating back to the late 1800s to early 1900s. Everything from their powder-coated hardware to their top-selling reclaimed wood desktops are carefully constructed by their team in shop to create one-of-a-kind statement pieces for your home and office needs. Check them out on their Etsy store, Facebook, and Instagram, or give them a call at 360-703-6936. And mention this ad for a 20% military discount on your order. And to top it off, shipping is free straight to your door nationwide. Urban Industrial Northwest, giving wood a third life from tree to structure to an awesome piece of furniture. Welcome to Through the Gray with Matt Raddick. How are you doing today, Matt? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you doing, Joe? Excellent. First question, why West Point? Well, when I was young, I was influenced by my cousin in the Marine Corps. I moved to Maryland when I was about 12 years old. When we were there, my dad got a sailboat, so I used to spend a lot of time sailing. And on the Chesapeake, you have the U.S. Naval Academy for the longest time because of my cousin in the Marine Corps, I wanted to go to the U.S. Naval Academy. But as I got older and learned more about it and started my application process, I saw what West Point wanted to offer and it just felt better for me. So it was almost like a leaf of faith, something I knew I 
wanted to do, and I couldn't tell you exactly why, but it's something glad I, I'm glad I did. What was the application process like for you? Did you stress having the breadth of requirements necessary to get accepted? I think because, because I was influenced so young, I think starting even in middle school, not knowing what the application process was like, my, my parents helping me, everything I did in school was kind of pushing me that direction because I just felt it was like something I wanted to do. I focused on my grades. I focused on sports. You know, I enjoyed my time in school. So when I got to the application process, I mean, to tell the truth, I do not, I don't even remember filling out the application. It wasn't, it didn't seem like it was hard to me. And it was actually the only application that I ended up finishing and submitting. And since I was accepted early action early, there was no, I ended up not having to fill out any other applications. I think because I spent so much time just when I was young, just knowing I wanted to go that direction. It just seemed natural and it was actually pretty easy to fill out. Like I said, I don't even remember filling out the application. When you walked into West Point, what was that like? After thinking about it, after preparing for it, what was that first day of walking into West Point like for you? It was the first time I was exposed to West Point was in third grade where my third grade teacher, you know, had two sons that graduated from there and I got to see it for the first time in pictures and walking in it was I think everything I expected and then probably like every other new cadet as I stood in my room at the end of the first day looking at the pile of stuff that they had on my bed I had the one thought of what did I get myself into but after that you know I just I knew I made a choice to go and I knew what it was going to be like and I enjoyed it for all the trials it had and for what was supposed to be tough. It was something I felt like an accomplishment. You do something difficult. And I think it was what I was ex expecting. And, and I'm glad I did it. Was there a moment where you doubted yourself, whether you made the right decision or whether you could get through it? There's none that stick in my head. I, every time I looked at it, I always thought about all the other people who did it before me. Knowing if they're able to make it through that, that I can make it through. So never a doubt, never a moment of true doubt. But when I started to doubt myself and think, you know, can I make it through this? I just thought of all the people who made it before me. And I knew I wasn't smarter than many of them, but I knew I wasn't dumber than any of them either. So now you didn't walk into West Point in the summer of 1997. When did you walk no, into did West not. Point? I walked into West Point the end of June, 1995, with the class of 1999. So talk me through the break and the decision. So, so actually, as I was getting ready to go to West Point, I'm a Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And a lot of us, when we hit about 19 years old, go on a mission, serve a mission for two years, either in the United States or somewhere around the world. And... I made the decision actually that I was going to go on a mission my, before I'd enter West Point. And I had a friend of mine from church back in Columbia, Maryland, who was two years ahead of me. And I was actually starting to have doubts because he wasn't sure if he was going to go. He's about to start his yearling year. 
but I remember over Christmas of his yearling year, right before, you know, I was going to start the next summer, he had decided he did need to go on his mission. It really influenced me. This individual later ended up, you know, having a very successful career and, uh, and doing some special things in the army. So that influenced me. So going in, I knew I was going to have that break at two years. And I think that helped keep me focused because a lot of people talk about, you know, getting cynical and kind of losing perspective while you're at West Point. I knew going in that I was going to get that break to, to go on another adventure and do something different. I think that actually helped me stay focused. So in the summer of 1997, after I finished my summer training, I resigned and went to Taiwan for two years as a missionary, learned the Chinese language, learned about the culture, learned a lot about myself and the world. And I was able to enter West Point again in the summer of 1999 with the current class of 2001 as they started their, their Cal year. Talk me through the experience in Taiwan. What was that like? It was, I would almost say it was surreal. I had traveled a little bit, but when I learned I was going to Taiwan, I didn't even know where Taiwan was. Only thing I knew about Chinese was my roommate yearly near at the time, he was taking Chinese and I was taking Russian. Coming to Taiwan, just being able to see what else was out here, you know, meeting and working with a people from a culture so different that I was used to growing up and learning to speak with them in their own language. I've really noticed as I speak to people, when you speak to people who English isn't their first language, especially if their English is very good, we have a tendency to bias ourselves where we hear them speak English, broken English. A lot of people's automatic feeling is they're not very smart because I can't communicate or whatever with them. We put it on them that they're not that intelligent. But when you, but when you get to speak with someone in their own language, you realize you really get to see who they are and, and what they know. And it helps take that bias away from you. And you know, now they have it towards me because my Chinese is never going to be as good as theirs. And they're going to think that I'm the one that's a little slow, but it didn't, it influenced me a lot. And it, I think it, that mission has really set me up to where I am today. And I know we'll get into that a little later in this discussion. When you came back from Taiwan, was there ever a doubt that you wanted to come back to West Point and graduate? For me, there was no doubt. The whole time, just like the whole two years leading up to my mission, I knew I was going to go on a mission. And the two years of my mission, I knew I was going back. And I actually felt very excited to come back. I felt energized. There's actually a small story. I think it was during my plebe year, we were... Sometimes we'd meet up a few of the LDS cadets to talk and we we're, I think in front of what we met up to talk in front of a Washington statue and General Olson was the commandant at the time and he came up to and talked to us and we told him who we were and someone said they were leaving or just come back from the missions. And he actually said he wished, you know, he wished it was possible for every cadet to have a chance to leave the academy for a year or two to go do something like that, to do something in the world, to get new perspective and to refresh and then come back to the academy to graduate. And that actually stuck with me. I think that helped me as I went through my two years gone, knowing that I was energized to come back. And if I had to stay four years in a row, I don't know what my experience has been like, but having the chance to leave and then come back and be refocused 
I think it really helped me get through in, in a very positive way. How did that impact your choice for major? At the time, going in, I wasn't, when I picked my original major my yearly year, I wasn't really stuck in any major. So I picked systems engineering, but coming back, I knew I wanted to somehow, I wanted to keep my language. I've seen people who'd learn languages and I kept up with them and I lost them. And I didn't want that to happen to me. If I spend so much time, energy to learn something, I wanted to keep it. So when I came back, I switched to what now would be called a Chinese major. And at that time it was a Chinese field of study with a systems engineering field of study. And that really kept me focused on developing the language better and then giving me the tools I needed to keep learning it even after graduation. Now there, there's the standard shuffle at West Point where after your first two years, you shuffle cadet companies and you go to a new cadet company. So when you came back in 99, you were a part of that shuffle. So that new company of class that you joined had just been formed. Was it easy to get back in and join the class of 2001 and get into the team? Matt? Yeah, I actually, I think that made it a little easier with the, <clears throat> excuse me, with the shuffle. Obviously folks knew each other, but it, it kind of, I think it was a kind of a natural entry point. So now that you asked a question, I think that did make the transition a little easier. As you were getting close to graduation, what kind of drove the decision for branch? I knew I wanted to do a combat arms. I knew I wanted to have those leadership experiences. And I think I picked armor because I could have the combat arm experience. But at the time I wasn't having problems with my hip or back, which I've had on and off for the last 20 years, but I knew that I think it would have been, I think it was better for me to go armor. So it was combat arms and I, I didn't think infantry was right for me. So I think that's what drove me towards armor at the time. Talk me through graduation, the end of that six year process. What was that like for you and for your family? I think it was surreal. You know, six years now seems like nothing, but six years you're in your, you know, late teens, early twenties, it seems like eternity. And it felt like a huge accomplishment, but just the beginning, you know, of a career that, that I've now been in for, you know, nearly 22 years. And it was, I was excited to what, you know, what laid ahead at the time of graduation, we were just short of September 11th, 2001. And I, w I was excited, optimistic idealistic maybe on what I could do. Talk me through armor officer basic course in 9-11. So I enjoyed the armor basic course. I remember exactly what we were doing. And when we got the news, I was at the, I'm trying to remember the acronym now that it was the tank, the tank commander's proficiency test. TCGST. TC, tank crew gunnery test. Yeah. So we're getting ready been a long time getting ready i was in line to to actually test on the modus on the 50 cal machine gun for assembly and disassembly and that's when the instructors came in and told us you know you know we're sending you home this has happened 
Maybe need to do some stuff. We'll let you know when it's, you know, time to come back. Fort Knox had basically, you know, shut down the gates, didn't leave post for at least a week, if not longer, because the lines at the gates were too long. And we didn't know what was going to happen, you know, at that time. It was just living our lives, getting ready to test on the machine gun. Next thing we know, you know, we hear about the Twin Towers. And, and that, I think, started a whole new chapter in our military careers, even though it was only, you know, just a few months into it. Talk me through your first duty station. Fort Carson. It was one of my top choices. I wasn't low on my list to get posting. So I think I was high enough to get it. I was excited. I wanted to go to the cab, the third ACR from the research I did on it. Did on it. I was excited to get there. Uh, I, the only regret I have about going to Fort Carson first was because it was my first duty station, I had nothing to compare it against. And, you know, having gone to some other duty stations after, I think me and my family, we could have probably taken advantage of Colorado Springs more, you know, for the time that we were there. I mean, I was there for a year and a half where my wife was actually there for two and a half years because I was gone for a year of it. But, you know, it was a great place. I enjoyed the unit I was in and the Third Armored Cavalry Regiment. And, uh, and sometimes I wish I, I wish there were jobs that I could take in what I do now that would take me back to Fort Carson or back to Colorado Springs so I could live there again. What was your tank platoon leader time like and what was the train up? So I was actually a scout platoon leader. So I had done all my training on, you know, on M1s, M1A2s, and I was on Bradley's. But it was a time I enjoyed. It was a learning experience for me. Getting to learn to work with the NCOs and the soldiers, the 19 Deltas, the scouts. Train up at first, just normal. I got my first day. I met the first day I met my platoon. I met them on the radio. When I had gotten a TA-50, all my stuff drawn, haven't even gotten my household, household goods delivered to my house. I went out to Pinion Canyon. You know, got picked up by the first sergeant, thrown in the back of a Humvee at about 23.30 at night. Met my gunner and my driver on my Bradley. Hadn't even met my platoon yet. Woke up a few hours later to run my first mission as a platoon leader. So their first meeting of me was on the radio running a mission. And I think that was actually a good start to my platoon leader time. And I got to train up going to gunnery, MTC, another gunnery, and, and deploying with them to Iraq in spring of 2003. We originally, we were supposed to be in the original invasion, but because it kicked off early, we ended up deploying out and they getting pushed out to the Syrian border soon after we got there. What was it like with that tempo uh, of getting basically thrown into the field at Pinion Canyon and preparing to go to Iraq. Actually, I think that was the best thing that could have happened to me because it doesn't give you time to think. It doesn't give you time to overanalyze anything. You just have to, you just have to do it. I think that set me up for a lot of my jobs later in the army where you just hit the ground running and 
enables you. I think it shows who you are more as a leader and as a person and how prepared you are that if you can just be thrown in a situation, we get paid to make decisions and as army officers. And I feel like it was a chance where I just got to hit the ground and start doing what I was trained to do or what I wanted to do without having time to overthink it. What was that experience like crossing the berm from Kuwait into Iraq with 3rd CR? It was surreal, especially because when we actually crossed the berm, we we're on the back of Hetz. They headed us from Kuwait up to Baghdad, where we finally got off the Hetz and then drove. But it was something surreal because I remember in middle school, you know, watching the first Gulf War unfold on the news and then seeing the original invasion as I was preparing to go out to Iraq. And it was, it was like a lot of things, I'll probably say it was surreal that I was actually there. Not no longer in Colorado Springs, but in the desert, you know, going into Iraq, something that had been in my memory since, since the early nineties. So where was your first location within Iraq? You headed up to Baghdad. Where did 30 CR go first? So we hit Baghdad, we dismount, we dismounted off the Hetz, and then we took about a three day drive. We hit Al-Assad, we, Al-Assad air base had only been taken, taken over the day before we stayed there for the night and we drove out to Al-Qaim. So for anyone who's ever read the book, Bravo Two Zero, with the SS Scud Hunters who were captured on the Syrian border in the Euphrates river, that's where I went. It was Al-Qaim in Al-Anbar province. So. Just to frame it for everyone, you had bypassed Fallujah and Ramadi, which were really the big cities that are west of Baghdad and had gone along to the Syrian and Jordanian border, which is the far western side of Iraq. Is that correct? Yes, my troop did. So at the, at the time, it was just Apache troop. I was Apache Red One. We went out there and then some of the other, the squatters and troops were in Fallujah and other places, but we were alone and unafraid on the Syrian border for the first, would say almost six months of the deployment. What was that like? It was, uh, I think it, there was a lot of freedom when we did. We had, you had an O3 captain. My troop commander was basically in charge out there and we had the freedom to run our missions. And I didn't really think much about at the time where we were, how isolated we were, just focused on what we were doing at the time. We were involved with trying to, yeah, Zakari. At the time, I didn't know, I can't even say it right anymore. I can do Chinese a lot better than anything else. But I'm not even going to try to say it. But with, you know, high value targets, afraid they're going to try to come in or out of Iraq. And that's kind of what we focused on. We opened the border checkpoint between Syria and, uh, and Iraq to try to let some trade in, but at the same time, looking for foreign fighters. And I think we were just really focused on the mission at the time and didn't have much time to think about it. And when they finally moved the rest of first squadron up to Al-Qaim, yeah, we kind of felt bummed because that was, that's the place we opened up. We'd taken over from the Royal Marines. They were the first ones out there. They're only out there a short time. We took over for him and it was our place to be. So after that six months of basically washing your uniforms in a bucket and picking your like number one or number two MRE out of these boxes for six months straight, what did you do next? I mean, 
So we were out there when the rest of the squadron came out. I can't remember. They ended up bringing the cooks out. So we had our own 30CR has its own cooks. You know, they brought out the food. They brought out some washing machines. They'd fix some, you know, water tanks. So there were showers and we just kept on running our missions. The fob got a little more busy, but it really, besides that, it didn't change. We kept on running our missions. There was a point, not anymore, but for the longest time on Google Maps or Google Earth that you could see my Bradley out at the fob on the maps before they updated it just a few years ago. What was that like? Because the majority of that, it's cops and robbers. It's the Wild West and you're trying to find the bad guys. And so you're in the middle of the night with your LRAS or your long range optic and you're looking for a change in the pattern of life. What was that like for you guys? It almost seemed like, like whack-a-mole. We were told we were supposed to be, you know, we're looking for foreign fighters coming in. On the border, it seemed like they were just, most of the stuff started heating up on the border, I think, when we were focused too much and they wanted to just draw enough attention to let foreign fighters in. So we never seemed to get what was happening in Baghdad. And it's funny you called it the Wild West because it was, what magazine? It was Ma Maxim, I think it was, did a did an article on our squadron out there and our squadron commander and, you know, had photographers and reporters, you know, going through some of the missions with us. And they actually called it the Wild West in the article. And that's kind of what it was. It was not unfocused, but we were just out there just trying to do the best we could. And hearing about, but at the same time, we we're hearing about all the stuff that was happening in Baghdad, which was not necessarily the same out where we were. Talk me through the redeployment and the impact that first deployment had on you. So I had been a platoon leader. We got up there. I took over my platoon in, in spring 2002. And then I... So I'd been with my platoon for just about a year when, when we deployed or we deployed, it was almost exactly a year. And then I was out with them in about a year, about another year into almost a two year mark. I'd actually branched, I'd actually switched with a friend of mine, a classmate of mine. He wanted, he was branch detailed MI to armor and I was straight armor. But I, fe I felt like I wanted to do something different. I wanted to go MI and he wanted to go armor. So the day before we left for, you know, deployed, this is back when things were done, you know, old fashioned with mail. We had sent in our letters to do a one for one swap. While we were deployed, we were told, you know, our branches were changed. So about in spring, so about 18 months to two years, I can't remember now. Late in my deployment, with a few months left, I had actually moved to the S2 shop as a, as an assistant S2. And a new platoon leader came in and took my platoon. And so we prepared. It was great redeploy redeployed, exciting to get back to the U.S. It was a little easier redeploying for me because I was no longer platoon leader, just redeploying myself and a few folks from, from my shop. But I also got news after I'd returned 
I had returned a few weeks earlier, one of my fellow platoon leaders and, and friend, Mike Adams had been, had been killed in an accident as he was redeploying his platoon. And that kind of made the redeployment pretty tough as the rest of the unit returned. How does an accident like that happen or Im impact you? It, I think it, it brings us back to think of our mortality where you see things happen when you're in Iraq, where you can't believe that someone, that someone could survive something or something worse didn't happen. But then you look at the accident he had where the chance of it happening are so low, it should have never happened in the first place. And I've seen this trope is, you know, is used in movies where I think they use it good in the, in the new Midway movie. When the one character was talking about his uncle where, you know, you just live life because when it only should think when it's your time, it's your time, you know, you do the best you can, but you can go through things where you should have never lived through it and you live through it. No problem. And you go through, you do something that there shouldn't have been an issue and it ends up taking someone's life. And I think it just made me realize that you can't live life scared. You just have to, you know, go and do the best you can. What was next for you after you returned to Fort Carson? So I returned to Fort Carson and it was senior for a senior first lieutenant. It was time to go to MI transition course and captain's career course. I wanted to stay on a timeline. So I kind of pushed to get out a few months earlier because if I would have stayed any longer, I would have got stuck up in a second deployment and would have been delayed another 18, you know, 24 months in going to the captain's career course. And I just wanted, I think I felt it was time to move on with my career. So PCS from Fort Carson down to Fort Huachuca, attended the transition course, which no longer exists in, into the captain's, captain's career course. And then I was able to do the CI, CI, the counterintelligence officers course. And then from there, I went to Korea. What did you do in Korea? In Korea, I started my first year. I was a G2X, the CI human officer for a second ID up in Weejambu at 22nd ID headquarters. And while there, I knew I wanted to do, I enjoyed Korea, something about Asia, having lived in Taiwan already two years, different culture, but there's still things that remind you I wanted to stay and I wanted to bring my family over. So I started interviewing for company commands and actually I was one for one. I interviewed for a company command at an alpha company, 524th MI battalion out of the, out of the 501st MI brigade. And then after a year up at 25th ID, I mean, it's at second ID, I moved down to Seoul to take company command. It got command sponsorship and was able to bring my wife and my son over. What was that like doing that, being in Korea for that extended period, but also be able to share Korea with your family. I thought I, it was great at the time being young, having done a deployment, my wife, she wasn't keen on me doing another one anytime soon. It gave me a chance where I could be somewhere different, doing something I really enjoyed being a company commander in a place I really love to be. And you know, just being selfish at the time, I have to worry about a deployment. And just, you know, able to spend time with my family and enjoy a different culture 
and kind of and fall in love with it. What was it like being a company commander, but also digging deep into the threat up that South Korea faces? I think it it helped me a lot with what I do today. Just you know, seeing what was out there, I feel like I was I had a real world mission. So instead of just you know just back and train and knowing you're going to do something, I was able to live the mission every day, and I think it helps keep you focused and you know it keeps it real. There's something about the fight in Iraq because it's so primal and the adversary you're facing could be anything from a a young kid who's been given money to do something that day to a hardened terrorist, but they're still not a professional military. And so when you have to look at the threat of a professional military with state backing, that threat that you see in the Middle East kind of diminishes and it forces you to really pick up your game. Yeah. I think it's a good way of putting it. So you've sharpened your skills. You've looked at the threat there that the U.S. has seen develop in the Pacific theater. What was next for you and your family after company command? So at the time we found out my son was having some fail the failure to thrive issues and I was supposed to stay in Korea another six months, but because we had my battalion commander, you know, gave me some time at the end of my company command to go see some doctors in Hawaii. We, I was, so right after I gave up company command, I had a compassionate reassignment to Hawaii, which took me to the 25th ID. With that compassionate reassignment, it gave me a chance about, I got about 12 months stability, stabilization, you know, just to get issues with my son taken, taken care of, which, you know, I'm happy to say he is now a freshman at the University of Maryland. So we overcame all those issues and, and we were able to, you know, just get established in Hawaii. And then I was moved in to the G2 shop in the 25th ID and prepared for another deployment because of the stabilization. I actually deployed about four months late, but because of the late deployment, much of some people's frustration, it set me up for a really good job. You know, after one year of working at division Maine, I was able to go work at the TAC with General Bob Brown in Mosul. What did you do with him and what was that experience like? Sorry, say again, you broke up. What was that experience like? I think working for General Brown up to that point was a key moment in my career. Seeing such a team builder and seeing how he could, you know, the experience he had being a warrior, having been in Mosul as a brigade commander, now being back as a one star and his diplomacy, the way he interacted with the partner. And I think it made a huge, it influenced me a lot. And I think what I ended up doing later, and I've had been for, I've been fortunate after, you know, after that time, when he took over user pack, I got to work with him again in a similar setting, but with a different partner. And after he retired and became president of AUSA, I've also got to be in, be in meetings with him. So he's actually influenced me through the latter half of my career on how to work with partners and how to be a warrior diplomat. Now, what was unique about that skill set and how he did it? I think it's the ability. I think we. I, there's almost a dichotomy in the word warrior diplomat. It was, I can't remember his name. I'm not going to, I won't tell a story, but just being able to 
knowing what he's able to do, the skill set he has, but at the same time, being able to bring, talk to different people from different backgrounds about different things, and, and, but bringing out the human side of himself and of the partner and being able to connect with people. And he was able to connect with the Iraqis, with the Kurds and the Yazidis and just able to, and just able to find that common ground where you would think there was no common ground. And I think that helped influence me as I've worked with partners from both sides of the Taiwan Strait. There is a human side and we can connect on the human level to talk about things that are difficult and to still have conversations when no one wants to talk and with all the things that are going now with china that even though they are a competitor potential adversary we do need to have communication and we can't just pick up the football and walk off the field we have to find ways to work things out or at least to exist in a space where we can trying to avoid conflict. And that was so difficult where you guys were in Missoula. And like you said, because the, it was the crossing point or the intersection point of so many ethnicities and so many religions and helping them to see each other on an individual basis and to find common ground and shared interests when all they used to focus on was what separated them and divided them. It created the seeds for a lot of success in Northern Iraq. Yeah, I actually had the opportunity because when I was there, I got to see some of the video that General Brown, as a team builder, when he, when Coach K with the Dream Team had pulled him in to, you know, bring the team together. And that, and on Netflix, that the Dream Team a documentary came out recently. It was really neat to see that again, where they pulled in the, you know, the, the video of General Brown with the dream team and his team from Missoula and just the ability for the ability that general Brown had that he learned from coach K as a cadet playing basketball and through his career, just to build teams and to try to bring people together. After that experience, when you redeployed back from Iraq to Hawaii, what was next for you? So I think right before I had deployed to Iraq, I, I got a call or an email from a classmate of mine, from, from Rich Chun, good friend and classmate, who was at the time teaching at West Point and he needed to find his replacement. So going into Iraq, I knew that I had an opportunity to teach the Chinese language at West Point. So well, actually while out there, I applied to teach at West Point and for grad school. So Coming back to Hawaii, I was ready to do a no-cost PCS. I was going to stay at my house at Schofield Barracks, but I PCS to the student detachment. And then having gotten back to the States November 1st, 2009, I started grad school beginning of January of 2010 at the University of Hawaii State. Asia Studies, China Focus, in preparation to go teach at West Point starting in the summer of 2011. What was that experience like coming back to West Point, but also teaching? It was 
this is going to sound almost cheesy because I wasn't, I really enjoyed my time at West Point, but it's, you know, and it defined a lot of me, but it wasn't, it wasn't fully me, but almost felt like coming home. It's very familiar. Had been gone from West Point for 10 years, but I think after the experiences I had in Iraq and being out, coming back to someplace familiar, very excited to bring my family and my kids to West Point because that's what kind of where it all started and the experience they got, you know, being able to, you know, meet cadets and watch football games and looking up while they're going to school and watching the parachute team jump. And I think it gave them a really unique experience and seeing the history and then just kind of where their dad was, you know, years before. And I'll use the word again. It was almost surreal driving back to West Point because it's like I never left. Now, did you have baggage from your two deployments in Iraq or had it spaced out well enough between grad school and your time in Korea that I think I was doing pretty good. My wife says there's a little change. I don't think I have, I think I handle things well. I don't think I have any baggage I know of. I think that's really all I can say. It was, there were experiences I had, they happened. I tend to dwell on the positive stuff, you know, things I've learned, the good things, the good experience I had there. I don't recall many bad experiences. So I think I fared much better than a lot of people. And why that is, I don't know. Because at this point, Iraq's transitioning, the majority of U.S. forces are being pulled out. The economy in the United States is going sideways and we're ramping up to go back to Afghanistan. And I know for a lot of people, that's one of those points where that moment was very stressful. What was it like for the cadets that you were teaching and, and guiding? I, I think because I was studying Chinese, I spent very little time and energy focusing on Iraq at that time. I really started focusing again on the Pacific and Asia. And I remember even when I was in Iraq, where after I moved to the two shop, I did a lot of stuff, you know, the night shift. And I had some time, I kept up on my Chinese language in Iraq when I was back at home. And I always had an eye in the Pacific and always saw it as almost an economy of force. So maybe that was a good distraction for me to keep Maybe that's what helped where I didn't get wrapped up in everything in the Middle East because I always had my eye on Asia and I was always fascinated, you know, by what was happening in China and in Taiwan and across the Straits. So maybe that was a good distraction or just something to keep me focused. And that's really when I talked to cadets, we, I don't, I don't recall really talking about the Middle East at all. We were always talking about China and Taiwan and the situation there. What's your time at West Point as an instructor? So from there I went, so I was lucky as I transitioned, I did, I was one of the first classes or first groups that did the voluntary transfer incentive program. I wanted to go fail before when they're doing the central selects, didn't get picked up. MI wasn't releasing, but fortunate for me when I was at grad school, got picked up to be a foreign area officer. So I was already in grad school doing a degree I needed to do for that. I already had the language is already usually a three, three, it jumped between two plus three and three, three in the Chinese language. 
And because I was picked up to be a foreign area officer, I went to my first tech, actually my second foreign area officer assignment because teaching at West Point is a foreign area officer billet. I got to go to the National Ground Intelligence Center and focus on the People's Liberation Army as my target, as my focus as an analyst. And so for three years, I got to read, study, and write about something that has become very important in the world today. Now, was that like, were you in like a big cube farm with a bunch of other dudes just going like blind, staring at a computer screen? What was that like? Yeah, I mean, it was a cube farm. I mean, really any type there, but a lot of collaboration. I worked with a lot of great analysts, a lot of retired military analysts, old FAOs. And we spent a lot of time, you know, discussing, talking. Yeah, you're on there reading and stuff, but you always had people you could talk to. And, and I was very happy, especially having a retired FAO sit next to me who wasn't afraid, you know, to put, you know, pull me under his wing and show, you know, just and help me. I had been an MI officer before, but I never had to be an analyst and actually do the writing that's teaching me you know, the systems and how to do it. And it was a job I thoroughly enjoyed. I got to geek out. Sometimes tell people I'm a geek and nerd at heart, but I'm probably the dumbest geek and nerd out there. But I really loved uh, doing what I did. And I had a great chance to work with analysts from across the intelligence community, uh, across, you know, all agencies on what we were on what we were looking at and it was a great foundation experience for me leading me into my follow-on jobs as a foreign area officer as a china foreign area officer with your experience forward in iraq with the host nation and engaging them directly with your experience in korea working directly with the south koreans did you miss that interaction um where it was primarily with U.S. intelligence apparatus and U.S. foreign area experts. Did you miss having contact forward? Uh, I don't think I miss it too much because I still had opportunities to do intelligence exchanges with other partners in that job. So I guess if you if that's a fix working with the partners, I was able to get my fix even in that job. So... I don't think I ever did miss it because I sought out the opportunities to do intel exchanges and I really enjoyed those intelligence exchanges with the partners. So what was the next experience after that, after you established that base? So after I'd done that base, PCS to get, and I got to go to the Indo-PACOM J51, which is, in the five is a strategic plans and policy. And the five one is your Northeast Asia branch. And I got to be the desk officer at Indopaycom over the three years I was there for China, Hong Kong, because at the time Hong Kong policy was different than mainland China policy, Mongolia and Taiwan. So I had almost a dream assignment as a China FAO. I got to work with whole all the parts of our portfolio i got to travel to china i got to travel to mongolia i got to travel to hong kong and i got to travel to taiwan in my three years at indopaycom got to work with the partner got to work with u.s policymakers worked through the interagency it was a great learning experience as a staff officer working for a four four-star staff 
kind of learning, you know, how we work at that level. You see an office secretary of defense, OSD, joint staff, the state department. And I like to tell people, I was telling cadets who I was talking to yesterday who were coming through, you know, came through where I'm at now. It's just, it's just, it's a great, you know, just a great experience and to be able to do, to do all these different things and to, I mean, it was almost like a dream job, but actually I was telling them, sorry, I lost my train of thought was it seems in my career that I've been blessed that every job I've had has given me experience I needed for the next job. So teaching at West Point gave me experiences because besides teaching, I did, I still work with foreign partners. I still work with foreign dignitaries with different agencies, going to National Ground Intelligence Center at NGIC. I got to still work with partners, but I got to study, you know, the People's Liberation Army and then going to the J-5-1 Indo-PACOM because I had the Intel background now was working policy and everything just kind of pulled together and that hasn't stopped yet. What was it like being at Indo-PACOM when we do the pivot to Asia and America's posture changes and our resources shift? So it, it was frustrating because we, at the, with the, in 2012 was when we did the pivot. I got to Indo-PACOM in 2016. We talked about a shift, but the resources didn't shift. When I was in Indo-PACOM, they were still cutting billets from the staff. And there was a lot of frustration because we, at the way I still feel now, because I still work very close with Indo-PACOM, and this is maybe Aaron Dirty Laundry, I don't feel like Indo-PACOM is resourced nor, or billeted or staffed to do the mission it needs to do. So even it was a frustration there because we talk about the pivots, but it felt very hollow in words only. We didn't feel like the resources and what we needed to do what we had to do came with that pivot. And I think it's still a frustration today. Little less now. Some things have, have changed in my, in the last couple of years. I know when I was forward in Europe at that same time in 2016, the core headquarters had been pulled back to the United States. A lot of the combat power had been pulled back to the United States. And so you had an IBCT in Italy, an infantry brigade combat team and a striker brigade combat team forward. And then you had a regionally aligned force of an armored brigade combat team forward. But we had pulled a lot of combat power back to support operations in the Middle East, but also to kind of create a savings in the European theater, but also the Pacific theater. And some of those staffs that were forward to shift and support those actions were also pulled back. And so it, it was definitely the policy was a shift, but like you said, the staffs weren't forward and you were trying to, to pull from these other resources to get the intelligence, to get the information and to row with you. What was your view of pathways and the exercises that we started around that time frame? Personally, I didn't work too much with pathways in my position at Indo-PACOM. I thought it was a positive thing. And I still think even now I don't work directly with pathways, but I think it was, we're trying to put our money where our mouth is. We're trying to demonstrate resolve. We're trying to demonstrate, demonstrate 
that we are in the region. So from what little I've dealt with pathways directly, whether people want to complain of how execution is done or anything, I think the idea, I think it's the right idea. And I know General Brown was very invested in pathways to demonstrate to partners that we are here and I'm trying to do more than just talk, but do things through action. I think that intent was similar to what we used to do with NATO and in Western Europe to work out the kinks if we had to deploy personnel forward against the threat in that theater and also to build that relationship with our partners that we could communicate, that we could sustain each other and that we could work together diplomatically if necessary. Did you see the diplomatic growth in the absence of an overarching alliance? Because there is no NATO in the Pacific. Joe, ask your question again. You, I just, the last I heard was diplomatic growth and then it cut off. Diplomatic growth in the Pacific. There is no NATO organization to kind of collectively organize and to build capacity for partnered nations. How much effort or what were you able to do to kind of move the ball in that area? When I was at Indopaycom, I focused on some things we had with the PLA in Taiwan. So I didn't see it with the Southeast Asian countries or the Northeast Asian countries of Korea and Japan very directly, but I could, I think I saw some of the, the benefits of us being out there now working in Taiwan, you know, I'm a firm believer in being present. That does make a difference. You put your money where your mouth is and you demonstrate through action, you know, what your beliefs are and what you want to do. So if the other countries you worked with, the reaction is anything like I've been working with the partners here in Taiwan, I believe it was very positive. Talk me through that transition, leaving Indo-PACOM and to your current position now in Taiwan. It was, it was a very, for me, it was a very natural transition. When I was at Indo-PACOM, I started working the China, I was a China desk. And then and for the first year, then I worked China and Mongolia for the second year with Hong Kong in there for policy things. And then I get for my last year at Indo-PACOM, I worked the Taiwan desk. So it was a natural transition going from Indo-PACOM, Taiwan desk into my position as the Army Programs Manager at the American Institute in Taiwan Security Cooperation Office. And it, and I have to say, is probably, it is the best job I've ever had in the Army, the yeah. most rewarding job I've ever had in the Army, both professionally and personally. But at the same time, when you put your heart and your soul into something, it has been it has been very tiring, but in a very good way because I've enjoyed putting my heart and soul into something for almost four years now. I was able to extend a couple of years ago. So I've finishing up my fourth year working with the Taiwan military, the Taiwan military, specifically Taiwan Army, and definitely the most rewarding thing I've ever done. Why has it been so rewarding? Because working with a like-minded partner and seeing the progress made and seeing if we're willing. I saw the things, the way things have been run for the last 20 Earth engagements. And then over the last couple of years, the U.S., because of the situation, the world has been willing to invest more of its own time and treasure into the partnership. 
and seeing how that has opened up what we're able to do together here in Taiwan. And that's why I made the reference to, to the pathways. I don't know how other countries went, how it goes with them, but just seeing the difference when we were willing to put some more skin in the game, the results of that and the partnerships and the friendships that I've seen develop between me and my partners and between our senior leaders and the senior leaders of the Taiwan military. And it's been very fulfilling and it's shown me that it is worth it. It is worth doing what we're doing. That idea of skin in the game, whether it's the international cadets that come to West Point, whether it's the military exchanges that we do between the service academies of different nations, whether it's the exercises we train together, it's like you were talking about those exchanges where a human can meet a human and you can see their humanity and those shared interests and strip away the politics and strip away the differences. That's really the ground for change. So looking back on your experiences at West Point and your experiences in the military, what are the big lessons learned for you? I think. I mean, this, I don't know if this is going to have tease you or not, but I think it's really focusing on the positive. There, there isn't a day I think that goes by that I don't think back to either, especially now living in Taiwan, back to my mission, living in Taiwan, back to West Point, back to something in my career that, that just, you know, reinforces that, you know, gives me encouragement that I feel like I've made the right choices. You know, I try to have the new thing I live by. So I'm trying to do the right thing for the right reason and always trying to make the world a better place, you know, than it was before I came into whatever part of it. I don't know if I can put, you know, one lesson, you know, a word that comes up between my wife and I talking sometimes and talking about our kids and wanting to instill in them is grit, is being able to, with a positive attitude, you know, work through whatever problems we're faced with and keep moving forward and knowing it's worth it. Whatever it is, it, you know, it's worth doing and worth doing right. Great point. Again, thank you very much for sharing your story today, Matt. You're welcome. It's a pleasure. Never thought I'd ever be doing anything like this. Have a great day. Tell duty is done. Through the Gray has a new sponsor, Whiskey Rustic Woodworking. Whiskey Rustic Woodworking is a veteran and first responder-owned company that specializes in handmade, one-of-a-kind American flags. I served with Andy, spending many long days and nights together in the dust and the heat during two tours in Iraq. Whiskey Rustic Woodworking flags are crafted with pride and dedication, honoring all that the American flag stands for. Every flag is hand-stained, handcrafted, and all stars and insignia are etched for a rustic, one-of-a-kind look. Whether you're looking for a graduation or retirement gift for your favorite military or first responder or something meaningful for family or friends, Whiskey Rustic Woodworking is your answer. Check out Whiskey Rustic Woodworking on Squarespace, Etsy, Facebook, and Instagram to browse current flag designs and sizes. Mention this ad for 10% off your order and shipping is always free. Make a rustic American flag part of your gift giving this year. Thank you for listening to Through the Gray. If you like this episode, please share with your friends 
and follow the podcast. We want these stories to be shared with as many people as possible.